Well, good afternoon, everyone. Um, I would like to start off by saying thank you to the elders for giving me this opportunity to hopefully instruct and encourage the saints. It's been two years, actually, since I last preached, and knowing the great quality of preachers that we have here, there are definitely some big shoes uh, to fill. But by the grace of God, I will do my best to share from God's word with you today. Um, So the text that today we're going to be going over is Galatians chapter 2, verses 6 to 10. Um, To get the gist of this passage, though, uh, I'd like to start going back and reading from the beginning of chapter 2. So I'm going to read from verses 1 to 10. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers, secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery... To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And for those who seemed, uh, from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted—sorry, uh, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So let's review some of the key things that have been spoken about in this letter, which will then lead us into the verses that we are focusing on today. So remember that one of the main reasons and thrusts of Paul writing this letter is to defend the gospel against the false teaching of the Judaizers. The Galatian church was made up mostly of Gentile believers, people who weren't of Jewish descent. And what happened was that after Paul left, some Jewish Christians, or at least that's what they called themselves, came and started to teach the Galatians something different. They had an improper view of both the gospel message and the importance of circumcision. Now, Kevin talked about this last time. There is a lot of credibility to thinking that circumcision was important for the Jews. It was. Circumcision was what marked you as being one of the people of Israel. And if you weren't circumcised, you were actually supposed to be cut off from the people. But what these false teachers didn't understand is the truth of the gospel, which is that salvation is the free gift of God by grace through faith. While circumcision was for the old covenant and for Jews, it is not a condition to being a part of the new covenant community. So Paul writing this letter to the Galatians as a defense is he's writing this letter as a defense of the true gospel explicitly states this in chapter 1 verses 11 to 12. For I would have you know brothers that the gospel that was preached to me is not man's gospel for I did not receive it from any man nor was I taught it but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. The gospel message of faith and grace alone that Paul has and shares is not human wisdom or man-made. It's directly from God, um, and that's where its authority and truth come from. Paul then shares some of his history with the Galatians, enforcing that he is uh, credible in what he is saying, and how he didn't even go to see the apostles because he already knew what to, to say and how to share the gospel with the Gentiles because of God's grace given to him. Paul is bringing up these points to show the Galatians, firstly, that we don't have to put our hope in the gospel because it has any man's seal of approval. It is God who has given it authority. And secondly, that it is from God and hasn't been invented or tampered with by the imagination of men. Any other gospel, including one uh, that includes circumcision, therefore, is not from God and doesn't have his authority and truth. And anyone preaching that gospel is cursed or anathema, as we read earlier in, in, as we read in chapter one before. So now Paul could have finished chapter one 
with just these truths alone to show the validity of his gospel, but to prove even more to the Galatians that the gospel does not require circumcision, he speaks of the time that he does go up again to Jerusalem. So chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately uh, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. So during this visit, uh, he lays out the gospel message that he preaches before them. Uh, specifically to James, John, and Peter, or Cephas, as we will see. Uh, He also brings up the point in verse 3 that Titus, being a Greek, is not compelled to be circumcised by the apostles in the city of Jerusalem, the holy city of the Jews. If there was ever a time, place, and group of people that circumcision should have been enforced, it was there. But they knew that circumcision was not a requirement of salvation. It is not part of the gospel. And so they didn't compel Titus to be circumcised, recognizing his faith as being sufficient to be justified. So why is Paul bringing all this up then? Well, I think it's to demonstrate that the gospel which he received from Christ, which does not involve circumcision, is also what the apostles affirm. He isn't some maverick teaching a different gospel message than what the people who were with Christ were teaching. Uh, uh, The Galatians actually would have known about the apostles, and maybe even the Judaizers were saying that the apostles were on their side. But Paul, what he's saying in these verses is showing that what the apostles truly thought uh, in order to prove that they agreed with him about the gospel message. So one reason to talk about these verses again is also because verses four to five actually interrupt the flow uh, or the story that Paul begins in in verse one. So verse one, two, and three are connected. And you'll notice when reading four and five, there seems to be a little bit of a a interjection that happens there. He adds this interjection about the false brothers to clarify why this is even an issue. It was because there were some false teachers who didn't want to let go of the law and circumcision as a way to be justified. And to them, it probably seemed unfair that the gospel offer was free to the Gentiles because they weren't the chosen people of God like Israel was. So for them to be saved simply by believing could possibly seem unfair. But what Paul says about them in verse 5, I think we need to take to heart. He says, to them, we did not yield in submission for even a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. When it comes to the truth of the gospel, we cannot relent for even a moment because the gospel at hand, uh, or sorry, because the issue at hand is not just opinions. It's not just feelings. It's souls that are on the line. If we submit to a false gospel, we abandon our faith and the justification that comes from believing in Christ alone, the one who paid the penalty of sin so that we can be justified. We basically say to our Savior, your death was not sufficient. The suffering and agony you endured on the cross for sin is not enough for me. I need something else like circumcision or works or whatever other heresies have come along over the years. And that's why this letter is so important to Paul and why he is so passionate in it to condemn this heretical teaching and to defend the true gospel. Because as he said, there is no other gospel. You either believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ for sins and that it is through faith alone that you are saved or you are still dead in your sins and trespasses. Those are the only two possibilities because there are no other gospels to cling to hope for. So bearing all this in mind, let's focus in on the passages that we will be examining today. So we're going to be starting from verse 6, which, remember, is a continuation of verses 1 to 3. And something you'll probably notice, actually, from reading through these verses is that they're actually one really long connected sentence. We don't see this as much in the English, but uh, when you look at it in the Greek, uh, it's actually all... It's meant to be read back to back and together because it's all, it is all connected. But uh, let's, let's start off by, uh, by reading verse 6 one more time. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. So Paul starts this verse by connecting us back to verse 2 by referencing those who are influential. 
What is important to note about the way that Paul is describing them as those who seemed influential is that he himself is actually making no indication of his opinion on them. What I find interesting about this is that Paul recognizes that people consider the apostles to be uh, important, influential, and special. But Paul himself is not admitting to that. Uh, Yet, while Paul is being neutral by using this phrase to describe the apostles, we should also recognize that he does consider them to be credible witnesses because he's bringing them up as he's writing this letter to the Galatians uh, to, to validate that the gospel that he preaches does not include circumcision. So he is um, saying to them that this gospel that I, that I hold, that I received directly from God, is also the same that the apostles, those who are considered influential, hold to. Now, to further show that Paul himself is not overly concerned with the apostles themselves, he adds, what they were makes no difference to me. Now, this attitude may seem kind of flippant at first, like Paul really doesn't care at all about the apostles. But the reason for Paul not showing reverence for the apostles is because he knows that the gospel message is from God first and foremost. Even the apostles themselves, the most influential people when it comes to the early church, apart from Paul, are not the authority for the gospel. For Paul would say that if the apostles themselves started preaching a different gospel, then they would be cursed as well. Uh, He will even give us a story later uh, next week uh, showing how one of the apostles was actually not acting in line with the gospel. And so Paul opposes him directly, making it very clear that whatever status someone might have is not important to Paul if the gospel is being maligned. So even, even these apostles who were with Jesus while he was here on the earth made mistakes. And while we can't deny their special position in the church as apostles chosen by Christ and as writers of scripture um, by the inspiration of God, we must remember that they were men and not the Savior themselves. They were the ambassadors of Christ, as we all are, but Christ is the head of the church. And that's what Paul thinks about the apostles as fellow slaves to Christ who are also subject to the commands of Christ um, as much as he was. So Paul considered himself to be equals with them for his commission to be an apostle for the Gentiles was given to him directly by God as it was for the apostles uh, for the Jews. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself as we will see this more as we go through uh, these passages. So Paul doesn't really put much stock into the apostles as others would, but we should also ask, what was Paul's justification for having this view of the apostles, right? And this is actually also provided by Paul when he says, God shows no partiality. When it comes to describing God, one thing that is repeated a few times throughout scripture is that God is impartial. He does not show favoritism. I'd like to actually read from Deuteronomy chapter 10, uh, verses 16 to 17. And the reason I'm going back to 16 is since we're talking about circumcision, I thought that verse might as well just be included there for us to read. So let me uh, read it out for us. Uh, Deuteronomy 10, 16 to 17. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribes. In the New Testament, even one of the apostles, Peter, says in Acts chapter 10, verses 34 to 35, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right uh, is acceptable to him. Peter acknowledges God's impartiality in terms, uh, here in terms of nations. Uh, that it doesn't matter what nation you belong to, you will not be judged on the basis of your race, nationality, or culture, but whether you fear God and do what is right. Paul also says something similar in Romans 2, uh, chapter 2, verse 11, comparing both Jews and Gentiles, how they will be either judged for evil or praised for good. So a lot of the talk of the impartiality of God revolves around the idea of God acting justly to all people, regardless of where they are from or even what they look like. 
This, of course, relates to the gospel message as well, because it's to be proclaimed to all nations and all kinds of peoples, right? God is not partial to exclude people based on what nation they come from. But Paul uses the impartiality of God a little differently in Galatians chapter 2. For the apostles are not of different nationalities than Paul. What he is talking about is actually status and experience. God does not care about how popular someone is. I mean, for how could that even matter to the God who created everything and is the strongest being in the world? (laughs) Or in the universe, I should say, actually. Um, Now, James chapter 2, verses 1 to 9, is actually a great passage that goes over the sin of favoritism for people who are rich over the poor. But what we must say is that the apostles are held to the same standards that all believers are. They cannot claim their apostleship as an excuse to sin or malign the gospel, if that were the case. And this is true for all of us as well. Rich, poor, popular or not, sick or able, whatever race or ethnicity we may be, we are all going to be held to the same standard of whether we believe in the good news of Christ Jesus for salvation or we don't. So Paul has justified his neutral view of the apostles For they are only true and right when they are in line with the gospel, and he would have no problem rebuking them for being out of line with the gospel message. Now, Paul completes the thought of this verse by adding, Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. He is showing, as he did earlier with the story of Titus uh, not being circumcised, that when Paul presents the gospel he received before the apostles, they don't add or change anything about it. Paul's gospel message uh, is that salvation is by grace through faith alone, and no other thing can be added to it. Their response of his gospel seems to be that they add nothing, which means they agree with it. And this gospel message is the one that gives freedom. Freedom from the curse of the law and freedom from circumcision. The message that Gentiles can be in the new covenant community simply by believing in Christ is all that is required. Circumcision or any form of law keeping is not how we are saved. And this is the, the gospel given to Paul by Christ himself. And now Paul says is also confirmed by the apostles. Now Paul is making some big claims here to the Galatian church. For someone to then read what Paul says here and to still teach circumcision as being required for salvation is to then go against Paul, the apostles, and even Christ Jesus himself. It should be very clear to the Galatians by now that the Judaizers who are stirring up trouble among them are baseless and in error. So this first verse verse already has a lot packed in it, uh, showing us again the result of Paul's laying out of the gospel before the apostles and how they don't actually add anything to it. Though it's important to remember that what Paul says about the apostles, though they seem to be influential by others, it is uh, in some ways irrelevant to him. Even though many others believe the apostles are really important, to Paul and his ministry, they didn't change much. Paul has this attitude because he knows what the scripture says about God, that he is impartial and doesn't show favoritism for status, race, culture, or any other thing. What he cares about is faithfulness. So Paul has the same attitude for men, including the apostles. So moving on to verse 7 then, uh, we have this. On the contrary, when they say that I had been entr- sorry, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the, gos- the gospel to the circumcised. Now the first part, on the contrary, points out that Paul is making an important contrast here. In the previous line, he says that the apostles added nothing. And now he's pointing to something that is even more important than simply not having his gospel message changed. You'll notice now from reading out this verse, it sounds incomplete, right? And that is the case. This verse by itself is incomplete because it starts off as a clause that then connects to its main part, which is in verse 9. So again, as I said earlier, kind of the thrust of these passages is to kind of read them back to back to back. Uh, But we are going one at a time. But if you're wondering why it sounds weird to just read out that verse by itself, that's the reason. So after saying, on the contrary... Paul continues with, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised. 
He is making a connection back to actually what he said in chapter one about God setting him apart and calling him by his grace to preach among the Gentiles. So I'm going to read this, uh, Galatians 1, chapter 15 to 16. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. This verse actually lays the foundation for all the verses that we're looking at today. They overlap so much. And some of the key things to remember from the verses I just read is how, firstly, God sets apart Paul. It's it's God who does it. And second, that uh, it's God who calls him. And thirdly, the way that he does it is by his grace. And then fourthly, the purpose of doing all that is so that he might preach him among the Gentiles. All, all these aspects of these two verses are going to keep showing up as we go through uh, chapter 2. So going back then to chapter 2, verse 7, the apostles, after hearing Paul lay out his gospel and most likely hearing this, his stories of starting churches and conversions, as well as the general testimony of mem- many members who, who had said the one who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the same faith that he tried to destroy, these apostles saw that Paul had been chosen by God to be a minister to the uncircumcised. Notice the language being used here. They see that Paul has been entrusted. That brings up a crucial question. Who entrusted Paul, right? And just as the gospel message that Paul has was given to him by God, so also his position as apostle to the uncircumcised is also from God. The apostles do not commission or appoint Paul to the position that he has. They recognize that this is the work and appointment from God. Uh, And we'll talk more about this apostleship later, but I want to switch now to looking at some of the words that are being used in this verse, specifically the words for circumcision and uncircumcision. Uh, Just one second. Specifically, oh yeah, so the words for circumcision and uncircumcision. The words are the technical terms used to describe whether someone has been circumcised or not. Instead of using the generic terms for Jews and Gentile, Paul decides here in this verse to use these more specific words. Now, this is probably because the main issue is circumcision. Right? This topic of circumcision and whether to practice it or not is important for both Jews and Gentiles because with circumcision comes the requirement to be obedient to the entire law in order to be justified. These terms uh, that are being used here are, are not being used in a derogatory way either because it is clear that Paul does not look down on the, on the Gentiles uh, by calling them uncircumcised. And in fact, he appears to be most passionate about ministering to the Gentiles, even though he does do some ministry among Jewish people. In the next few verses, actually, Paul is going to switch back to the word for Gentile, showing again that he, he's not afraid to use uncircumcised and, and Gentile as synonyms, um, but there's not a derogatory meaning to them. We also know that, that one of Paul's closest workers was a Greek who was uncircumcised, right? This was Titus. And so, yeah, there's no malice at all being used by this term. And in fact, I think there's almost a statement being made uh, by Paul using this term. He is saying that he has been entrusted with the gospel, not only to the uncircumcised, but also to those who are going to remain uncircumcised. Um, By defining the group this way as the uncircumcised, when the main issue is circumcision, he's pointing out that it's it's a proper definition. Because as Paul goes and shares the gospel with the people, he's not going to be preaching them in a that, they, that circumcision is required. They're saved apart from that. And so for the Gentiles, for the uncircumcised, it is not necessary for them to then be circumcised after believing and having faith in Christ. So the next part of this verse is, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, using just as shows that Paul is making a comparison between himself and specifically Peter. When we think about the apostles, uh, it is usually Peter who is the most referenced and shows, up, uh, and shows up the most. In fact, even Acts seems to focus first on Peter and then switches to Paul uh, in his ministry. 
Uh, there definitely is something special about Peter from among the apostles, and apparently his focus in ministry is towards the circumcised, the Jews. Of course, we know of Peter's ministry uh, to Cornelius and to his household when Peter realizes that God shows no partiality. Uh, as I quoted earlier, actually, from Acts chapter 10, that was, uh, that was the story of when, when Peter is before Cornelius and his household. Um, but I think that Paul is bringing up this parallelism between him and Peter uh, to show that he is considered, he is to be considered as an equal to Peter. Um, He's even implying that the apostles themselves recognize that. So as we go forward, I think we're going to see even more of that too, as Paul will continue to reinforce this idea of being similar to Peter in authority. While this may sound pretty uh, clear so far, unfortunately, there are those who distort this passage in a very odd way. (laughs) You see, because gospel of the circumcised and gospel of the uncircumcised are used, People have taken this to assume that there are therefore two different gospels, or maybe even more. One gospel that is primarily for the Jews and one that is for the Gentiles. Now, this is obviously not what Paul was meaning because then you would have to actually overlook or distort so much scripture to try and prove this point. And and I'm not going to go over this too too far, but we can look within this very letter itself. If you turn back to chapter 1, where Paul says in verses 6 to 7, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Notice that Paul clearly states there is no other gospel. The different gospel that he refers to, he actually clarifies by saying, in ver- clarifies in verse 7 by saying, it's people who want to distort the gospel of Christ. And gospel of Christ is singular, right? There's not multiple of them. We would also think that if there was different gospel messages, then that would mean uh, that Peter should be teaching a different message than Paul. But that's not the case at all. They seem to believe and teach the very same things. When we see Peter teach the gospel, there is no mention of circumcision or law-abiding or anything different. The gospel he preaches is also salvation by faith uh, alone in Christ alone. Uh, So a couple of verses for that is going back to Acts 10 uh, before Cornelius. Uh, Peter says this, To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And in one of Peter's own epistles, 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 9, he says, and this is the end of a sentence, so I apologize for this, but it says, Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So faith is uh, all that's required for salvation. So if there were two different gospels, why do both, both apostles preach that salvation is by faith alone? This is clearly just a big error in comprehension of this text. Not to mention that later, when Paul rebukes Peter, it's because he was out of line with the gospel, and not simply just his Jewish gospel versus Paul's uh, uncircumcised or Gentile gospel. So if there aren't two different gospels being spoken about, what is being said here uh, in verse 7? I think that the clearest way to understand this is that it is a difference in emphasis and focus um, in their ministry efforts. The gospel message does not change between the two, only the audience that they are primarily dealing with. See, Paul's ministry efforts were largely focused on the Gentiles, and while it did sometimes include Jews when we read through Acts, it's often the Gentiles who are actually responding to Paul's message. Uh, And it's also pretty obvious in the fact that Paul, during his missionary journeys, leaves Israel, while Peter, on the other hand, pretty much stays in Israel. Uh, And this makes sense, too, because if you're going to go and minister to Gentiles, you probably need to go to where the Gentiles are. And similarly, if you're going to minister to the Jews, it's best to be in the place where there are lots of Jews, uh, which would be Israel. So I'd also like to uh, take a moment, though, too, to talk about maybe emphasis when it comes to the gospel. Because the content of the gospel message is the same, it does not mean that it needs to be told or emphasized in the exact same way uh, to, to different people. 
One of the things Ray Comfort says for his street evangelism is that he gives the law for the proud and grace to the humble. Meaning that when he is sharing the gospel with someone and he is uh, speaking with someone who believes that they are good and righteous and, and a perfect person, he emphasizes more of the law and our failure of it to humble the pride of that person. And conversely, when speaking to someone who is feeling their sinfulness and the failure of, and their failure of the moral law, we should teach them of the grace that there is from Christ to those who believe. The grace that doesn't require us to be morally perfect um, by our own works. If we needed to shape up before we could believe, there would be no one who believes the gospel. For Paul and Peter, they most likely emphasized different parts of the gospel when speaking to their crowds because the Jews would already understand the idea of Christ and prophecy pointing towards him, whereas the Gentiles would not have the same understanding being ignorant of the Old Testament. But the content of the gospel does not change. Recognition of sin and how it brings the wrath of God, repentance and faith in Jesus, the Son of God, who was crucified for the sin of all who believe and who was also raised from the dead and is seated at the right hand of God. This is the gospel message. And if it's changed, it is no longer the gospel. The only way to be justified for our sin is by believing in Christ and the sacrifice he made on the cross. So there are times where we maybe need to be more understanding of what aspect of the gospel message we need to emphasize, um, depending on the person or the people that we are talking to. But that does not mean that we ever change the gospel. And what's important to remember about this approach is never to make the gospel more palatable or acceptable to people by downplaying parts or overemphasizing others. To talk about sin and holiness can and will be offensive to someone. But it is is essential to understanding the grace and mercy that comes from God. And similarly, to proclaim judgment on sinners without providing the love of God displayed through Christ's sacrifice is just as wrong. We must share the whole gospel with people or else we are either giving them false hope that God loves them despite them remaining in sin or we give them no hope by condemning them without sharing the grace and mercy that comes from believing. So Paul and Peter, though they had different audiences and even contextualized the gospel uh, for their different audiences, they never changed the gospel message, the essentials of what the gospel is, and neither should we. So here in verse 7, Paul is telling the Galatians that the apostles not only uh, didn't add anything to his gospel message, but they also recognized in him that he had been entrusted with doing ministry to the uncircumcised, which is the technical word, uh, but in general means the Gentiles, while Paul is being uh, contrasted as being for the Jews. This was a difference in audience, not content, for the gospel does not change. So moving on to verse 8 now, we have, For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also uh, through me for mine to the Gentiles. This verse connects to the previous one as a parenthetical note, which simply means it's giving further explanation to the previous verse. Whenever you see the word for, it's always a good idea to ask what it's there for. The word for usually gives some kind of explanation or connection to what came before. And that's exactly what we are seeing here in this verse. This verse actually almost repeats what Paul just said, but this time the focus has changed. It's not about Paul and Peter uh, who are at the center of attention. It's the one who worked through Paul and Peter for their apostolic ministry. The focus has changed to that one who's worked through them. And of course... The one who that is, is is God. God is at the very center of both men's apostleship. And to briefly describe the word that you're seeing there, apostolic ministry, uh, it means more than than just the position held by these men in the church. Uh, Though they would both hold what we call the office of apostle, apostolic ministry, as is being used here, is also to refer to what they were doing. They were going out, sharing the gospel, planting churches. Remember earlier when I mentioned how Galatians 1 uh, uh, verses 15 to 16, when God set apart Paul and called him by his grace? Well, this is also 
being referred to here. I would say that what Paul means when he says that God worked through him uh, is that God saved him from his sin and error in trying to destroy the church, but more than that, also appointed him to a place of being an apostle to the Gentiles. It's all the work of God, and it is by the mercy and grace of God. And this is the same for, for Peter as well, who was chosen as Christ to be an apostle. And I would say from his confession, uh, when, when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, to also be considered the rock of the church. So the main focus of this verse, though, that we're reading is that it's, it's what God has done. He's the one who worked through them for their, them to be apostles and to do their ministry work as well. Um, now, could God have chosen other men? Yes, but by his grace and mercy, he chose Paul and Peter. Uh, another thing to be said of how God worked through them is also the quote-unquote success of their apostolic ministry. It was also only based upon what God was doing. Similar, or maybe the verse to think about when, when talking about this, is what Gamaliel says in Acts 5.38-39, and he says this. He says, So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. If their apostleship was man-made, it would not get very far. But it is clear from Acts and from the very words of Paul here in Galatians 2 that this is from God. And one thing to notice about this verse as well uh, is that Paul does not make one, uh, sorry, is that Paul does make one slight difference here in this verse when he uses the word for Gentile instead of using the term uncircumcised as he used before. But he actually still uses the other word for circumcised. So you'll notice in the ESV, it translates it as uh, apostleship to the circumcised and apostleship to the Gentiles. So Paul does use that other word here in this verse. But again, he just uses the two of uncircumcised or Gentile synonymously. So why does Paul make this point about God working through him and Peter? Well, it's important to recognize the indirect object here. It's specifically for their apostleship. So Paul says that this to further emphasize to the Galatians that he's writing to, that when it comes to the apostles, he should be considered equal because God worked both through him and Peter for their apostleship. The apostles and the apostles too recognized that God was working through Paul just as Peter. And so the Galatians should recognize that too, hopefully. Now, again, one more thing to say. This is not a position Paul is self-appointed to. It's directly from God and it was also sustained and given success by God. Which brings us then to verse 9. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the uncircumcised. Sorry, to the circumcised. Paul now clarifies what apostles he has been talking about. James, Cephas, or also known as Peter, and John. Now, if you are familiar with biblical stories in the Gospels, out of the main 12 apostles, uh, there were three in particular that were more intimate with Christ. Uh, they were there with him while he resurrected a little girl. They went up on the mount with him and witnessed the transfigured Jesus. And they, there are also the three that he brought with him to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And these three were James, Peter, and John. And yes, there are a few different Jameses that show up in the New Testament. But I think that from reading this verse, it's best to think of them as being these, these main three. Especially considering what Paul says about them next. He calls them the pillars. Now, Paul was earlier calling them the ones who seemed to be influential, but this time he changes the meaning or the, what he says a little bit differently and calls them those who seemed to be pillars. Now, just a reminder that when Paul is using the seemed to be, it shows that he, isn't, he, he himself isn't giving the, that description to the apostles themselves, just reiterating, he's just reiterating what others have said or think about them. When Paul refers to them, um, now when Paul is referring to them as pillars, we as modern readers might not get the full understanding of what's being said. 
we know we might think of you know stand upstanding uh, the pillars of society, uh, people who are upstanding citizens or important people, uh, but there is actually a lot more theological meaning to what is being said by the apostles being considered the pillars. So I'd like to to quote from uh, J.V. Fresco. He has a commentary on Galatians, and and he says this. First, any Jew familiar with the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, would likely recognize the word, as it is the same word used for the pillars in Solomon's temple. And now, if you want the reference, it'd be 1 Kings 7, uh, 15 to 22. In fact, the pillars were famous even having proper names. Um, So Paul uses an architectural term for Israel's past laden with significance. And second, Ezekiel and Haggai prophesy of a time when God would rebuild his temple. The, and then this is a quote from, I'm pretty sure it's from Haggai 2.9. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So the apostles being called pillars refers to the Jewish understanding of the temple. Uh, The pillars were the things that upheld and supported the temple. And we, as Christians, are the new temple. And in this spiritual temple, James, John, and Peter were considered to be some of those pillars. Now, again, this is not to take away from Christ being the head of the church, but rather recognizing the part these men had to play as God worked through them. Paul, of course, isn't necessarily agreeing or disagreeing with this assessment of them being pillars, but by bringing this up, he at least acknowledges what people think of them and and the way that people think of them. And he recognizes that probably the Galatians he's writing to recognize this as well. So he's bringing up this point to prepare, prepare the Galatians about what these pillars are going to do in this verse. Uh, so Paul also links this verse to the previous ones by stating that, what the, uh, that the apostles perceived the grace that was given to me. Now this time, instead of saying it was God's power or the entrusting of the gospel, he calls it the grace that was given to him. He is saying that this, he, he, sorry, he is saying this as another way to describe his apostleship and focus of ministry. But by referring to it here with the word grace, reminds the Galatians and us that this role that Paul had as an apostle to the Galatians as a faithful servant of Christ is only by the undeserved grace of God. There is nothing wrong about Paul, sorry, there is nothing about Paul that made him deserving of this position in comparison to any other person. God was not obligated to make Paul an apostle, but rather he decided to show grace and mercy and remember, remember how this goes back to Galatians 1, verses 15 to 16? It is by God's grace that he was called. Uh, but I'd also like to read out actually for us uh, from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 to 14. Because um, this, this, this is what Paul has to say about himself that I think uh, we should keep in mind as well. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So I would say that just as Paul's salvation is by the grace and mercy of God, so is his position as an apostle. And that's what James, John, and Peter recognize in their meeting with Paul. And so this brings us then to their response. They extend the right hand of fellowship to Paul and Barnabas. Now, remember when we read verse 7 and how it sounded incomplete? Well, that's because that was leading up to this main part in verse 9 here. Um, and so if, if we went back and read 7 to 9, we would, we, it's all leading up to what, what this has to say about the apostles seeing that Paul has been entrusted with the gospel, that God was working through him, and recognizing the grace that was given to him, they respond by giving him the right hand of fellowship. To give the right hand to someone was a common sign in ancient times of agreement or friendship with someone. So what the apostles are basically saying to Paul and Barnabas is they are saying, we recognize God has worked in you for apostleship. We will be friends and co-workers with you where possible. If there had remained any doubt about the situation between Paul and the apostles, this gesture makes it very clear that they considered themselves to be equals and fellow workers. 
only that they had a different focus, right? Because it says that we, Barnabas and Paul, should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So Paul, by affirming that the apostles added nothing to his gospel message, but instead actually recognized his apostleship and extending to him the right hand of fellowship, demonstrates that he is in the right when it comes to the matter of circumcision and that the Judaizers are wrong. The gospel does not include circumcision to be saved. And the same gospel message that, that was preached, sorry, and that it is the same gospel message that is preached by both Paul and Peter, even if their audiences may vary. So this leads us then to our final verse that we'll be looking at today, which is uh, verse 10. And so I'll read that out. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So the last verse we're looking at is actually a request connected with the previous verse. Now, just to be clear, it is not a condition or a requirement, but rather an exhortation that in the midst of their ministry to the uncircumcised or to the Gentiles, uh, that they would not forget about the poor, right? Now, two obvious questions come from looking at this verse. Firstly, who are the poor? And secondly, what does it mean to remember them? Let's talk about who the poor are first. I will say that, of course, the, the poor being mentioned here could include the poor in general, right? For it has always been considered to be a virtuous thing to give alms and to help those who are needy, uh, especially if you go and read the Old Testament. There is so many exhortations to take care of, of those who are poor or those who are, who are in need. Um, charity and helping people uh, are good things, and I will never, never deny that they are. But I do believe that in this verse, the poor that the apostles have in mind here are specifically the saints, fellow believers, who are in need. Now, the reason I take this view uh, is actually threefold. Firstly, in Scripture, uh, I think there are some very serious exhortations for believers to take care of each other when in need. And to deny doing so is actually considered a bad thing. Um, the big, two, two biggest examples would be Matthew chapter 25, which is the story of the sheep and goats. And secondly, 1 John 3, 16 to 17. Um, now, I'm not going to read uh, the sheep and the goats, but I will read from 1 John, which is, um, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? And the story of the sheep and the goats uh, in, in its story includes the talk of the least of these brothers of Christ, which if you, if you look at the context of Matthew, makes it very clear that what Jesus is talking about is his apostles, his, or sorry, his disciples, not just apostles. Um, and here in John, what we're seeing is that, of course, our brothers in need are referenced to be our brothers and sisters in Christ, fellow believers, the church. And I would, again, I would say it's a good thing, of course, to help the poor in general, but there is special exhortation in Scripture for us to make sure we take care of fellow believers who are in need when we have the ability to do so. Um, I think the, se the second reason I have is that there is a possibility that this meeting that Paul has in Jerusalem with the apostles, uh, with the pillars, was actually uh, to bring them the collection of the, uh, for the poor saints in Jerusalem that happens in Acts uh, 11 to 27 to 30. I'll read that out in a second. Um, but if this was the case, then that would clarify some things about what Paul meant when he said in verse chapter, uh, sorry, in chapter two, verse, verse two, that he went up to Jerusalem because of a revelation. It could be that the revelation he's referring to could be the one given by Agabus about the coming famine uh, across the world. Uh, and there is a possibility it was, no, no, there, there is a possibility it was a, a personal or different revelation he was talking about. And it's, um, so I'm not, I'm not, this is not necessarily a place I'm willing to die on or anything like that. But I, I do think that there is some interesting connections. So let me read for you Acts uh, chapter 11, uh, verses 27 to 30. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the, the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders, 
by the hand of Barnabas and Saul, also known as Paul. As further evidence to this fact, uh, uh, it may have been that, that when Paul had this meeting, meeting um, with the apostles, if he was bringing the, the alms that were, that were taken, uh, this would be before the Jerusalem council that happens in Acts 15. Now, if you're, not, if you're not sure what the Jerusalem Council is in Acts 15, I'll give you just a very brief summary. It was the def, uh, a very big defining point of the early church where the issue of circumcision and, and what to do with Gentiles came to a clear final decision. Paul was actually one of the people there, as well as the apostles and elders of the church of Jerusalem, where they recognized and, and admitted to that salvation was by faith alone. And so they, they from that point on, said, we're not going to impose circumcision and the law on the Gentiles. And so the Jerusalem Council happens in Acts 15, and what I just read for you comes from Acts 11. Now, there could be another time that Paul had come to Jerusalem, but I'm thinking that he probably didn't go... Uh, to, he, he's not writing this letter to the Galatians uh, before, after the Jerusalem Council happened. Because I think that if he did, then he would probably point to the, the, the outcome of the Jerusalem Council as further evidence and proof of why the Judaizers were in error. But I will say I could be wrong because maybe Paul is alluding to this meeting that he's having with these pillars to actually be the Jerusalem council. He's just not giving all the details as we have in Acts. So I'm, again, not necessarily a hill I'm willing to die on. But let me, let me say one more thing. The third point of, as to why I think this is primarily about the poor saints. I think that Paul's attitude in the New Testament and other writings is that he wants to care for the poor saints in Jerusalem. I'm going to read out Romans 15, but you can also, if you want to, go reference things like 2 Corinthians uh, 6 to 7, uh, might include 8, I could be wrong about that, where Paul also talks about collecting for the saints in Jerusalem. But this is what he says in Romans 15, 25 to 27. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Israel. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought to also be of service to them in material blessings. So I think there is good reason to to think that the poor, in reference here, is primarily to the saints. Um... But the next question to ask is, what does it mean to remember them? I think there is, of course, the very literal understanding that you could take that would mean that maybe you should pray often for the poor uh, to keep them in mind. Um, But I think as well, there's definitely a practical aspect being implied here. It's not just simply thinking and praying for the poor, but as Paul and Barnabas were out spreading the gospel among the Gentiles, they would also have collections to to help this. uh, (laughs) They would also have the saints in those places that they were preaching the gospel give a collection so that they could go and bring that back to Jerusalem to help the poor saints there. Uh, which, as I read earlier from Romans 15, this is what he says. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. So this encouragement to remember the poor could also mean to take up collections uh, for the churches that were in need so that the whole church, uh, the whole church body across the world uh, could be strengthened and encouraged and held together by one another. Right? Not necessarily just uh, lonely islands that, that have no association, but rather helping one another in need. And of course, this was a very important back then where something like a famine could completely destroy uh, a city or town or region. Um, so anyways, so this, this, this request then of, of to remember the poor is made by the apostles to Paul uh, is not an overbearing request. Uh, in fact, even Paul's response shows us that he himself was eager, uh, this very thing he, I was eager to do. Paul had no problem following along with this as he was already or would be anyway um, doing this. And this shows as well that even the one request made to Paul uh, in this whole section that we've, we've been reading is actually something that Paul was already in agreement with. So really, this whole encounter with the apostles had a lot of, ag- of agreement in it, and from Paul's point of view, no conflict or, or, or disagreement or anything, which goes to show, again, that Paul is trying to make the point that when it comes to the gospel message, 
The apostles are right there with him. They're on this, they're, they're believing the same thing, preaching and teaching the same thing and confirming uh, his message as well when he lays it out before them, not adding anything to it. And so if the Galatians were not sure really what to, what to believe, whether these Judaizers are correct or, 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 or not, uh, Paul is giving his credentials here of saying, this gospel that I have is from Christ himself. Uh, it's, it's not mine. It's no one, no one gave it to me and I didn't even need, need to confirm it with anyone, but I did by going up to the apostles, laying it out before them. And even they agreed and they recognized Paul's apostleship, which was given by God. And, and finally they extend the right hand of fellowship showing that Paul, we're going to, you know, we're going to work with you. We, we, we recognize that God is, is uh, doing things in you and we want to, to extend our, our, our fellowship, our, our partnership with you. And even though they, they go different ways with different audiences, uh, as we talked about before, they're still going to, sh- to share the same gospel, regardless if, if they go to the, the Jews or the Gentiles. So now that we've gone over all these verses, um, hopefully I didn't say too many things that were heretical. I'm sure uh, the elders will rush me off to the side after. And uh, no, I'm done just teasing. Um, but I would like to go back and, and, and review just some of the main points of, of these verses that we read. So firstly, I'd like to say that the gospel and Paul's apostleship are given from God, having his authority. They are not man-made, nor do they even require confirmation from men. And secondly, that the apostles, uh, that Paul does not regard based on their uh, importance, also recognize, these apostles also recognize Paul's apostleship, which is by God's grace. And they also bear witness that the gospel message that he has and shares is correct. And that to be justified before God only requires faith in Christ alone. The third point is that the audience of the gospel may change and require different contextualization, but that doesn't mean the content of the gospel ever changes. Making the gospel more palatable or acceptable by ignoring parts is just as wrong as holding back the free offer uh, of salvation for sin through faith and repentance. And the final point is that the church, when functioning well, should be a support to one another, both to the believers and to those around us, but where possible uh, to fellow saints who are in need elsewhere as well. So these are uh, uh, at least the, the main points I hope that you would take home from, from this passage in Galatians that we uh, have been reading today. Um, I'm going to invite the Swatskis up again, and as they come, I'm going to uh, pray for us. So. Dear Lord, I, uh, I thank you for this day, for your, your love, your grace, your mercy that you show us, Lord, how you have given us your word um, to, instruct, uh, to instruct us, to encourage us, to help us uh, learn and grow, to know uh, about you and what you have said. Um, we thank you for the gospel message that is so clearly spoken throughout your word, Lord. I pray that, that even though um, not necessarily a part of what we, what we read about today, but I pray that you would, be, you would help us to be fearless, Lord, in sharing this gospel with those around us. That you would help us be people who are as concerned for the lost and unsaved as Paul was for the, uh, for the Gentiles and Peter and the other apostles for the Jews. Help us to be a people that, that desire to, to share the gospel and your word with those around us, Lord, uh, that we may be able to fulfill the great commission to, to make disciples of all nations, uh, Lord, that we would teach them everything uh, that you've commanded to us and, and to baptize them, Lord. Um, we can never be uh, faithful enough. And I, and I pray that, that out of remembering of the grace and mercy that you showed us to save us, just like how you showed grace and mercy to Paul, that we, Lord, would, would uh, use that as, as, uh, as energy and as, as a way to, um, to, to, to go forward as, as brave soldiers of Christ, to, to, to share the gospel, to, to be light in the world, to be salt in the world where need be, Lord. Uh, help us to, to yeah, to, to be faithful. Uh, and I pray, Lord, that also um, where there is uh, error or false teaching of, of the gospel, that we would not... Um, we would take it seriously, Lord, that, that we would recognize that when the gospel is maligned, it is not simply just a matter of opinion or, or thoughts or, or anything secondary, Lord. 
uh, for the gospel to be denied is to deny you. And it, it is no, there's no other gospel. And so if we, if we come across that, Lord, I pray for, for grace, for mercy, for wisdom to, to know how to, how to respond when we need to, Lord, how to, um, uh, to share the true gospel and to, to, to point out the errors. Um, and of course, Lord, uh, out of everything that we do, I pray that that glory would be given to you, that your name would be upheld um, and that, yeah, all praise that you are deserving of would be, be given to you, the Lord of Lords and the, the King of Kings. So please be with us. Uh, thank you for this opportunity to, to share your word. Uh, I pray that as we continue, Lord, uh, again, we would do every, make every, or use every opportunity to, uh, to bring glory to you and to do good. In the name of Jesus, we pray.